Good. I think that's it. I'm so glad you're here and, uh, and encourage you to open your hearts, be present here and now. Um, uh, as you hear familiar things, don't think, I've heard that before. Think, what's mo what more is here for me? Uh, there's, there's more here. Where, how do I take this to a deeper level? If it's new stuff, if it's a lot of information, know that you're welcome to just take this at your own pace and to discover what it is that God has for you in his word today, all right? So um, band-aids are a big part of my life. Uh, they're kind of a regular part of um, our Target shopping list. It's sort of a consistent thing that we're purchasing pretty much all the time. My boys kind of have a perpetual Band-Aid wearing operation happening. There's always some wound care happening in our house. Uh, the Band-Aid of choice currently is the big square one. Like the more real estate, the better. Just cover the whole thing up, right? Just get it all covered. Uh, when, when I was a kid, Band-Aids were all pretty uniform. I mean, there were like a couple of different sizes, but that was about all of the variety that existed. Today, you go to a store to get Band-Aids and there's like a Band-Aid section. There's, there's like shelves of Band-Aids. There's just almost an unlimited amount of possibilities and choices related to Band-Aids. Let me give you some examples. You got your whole Disney set of Band-Aids, right? You can just choose the movie of your choice. You got the What Happened Band-Aids that um, just answer the question right there. Don't even have to have a conversation about it. You even got bacon strip Band-Aids if you're just into that and it just never stops, right? So this all begs the question, what are Band-Aids for, actually? What's the whole point behind this? It really depends on who you share life with, I think. If you're sharing life with little kids, if you have little kids in your house, then Band-Aids are not primarily for medical first aid. They're, they're not. Uh, Band-Aids are psychological propaganda. That's what they are, right? They're, they're a tool for achieving emotional stability in a short amount of time. That's what a Band-Aid is for. In other words, a Band-Aid is not for blood. It's for tears. That's the point. Uh, am I right? Anyone can uh, resonate here with this? If you go to the doctor's office or the nurse's station at the school and they ask you as a little kid, what kind of Band-Aid do you want? They're not talking about size and they're not talking about style. They're talking about the picture that's printed on the backside of the Band-Aid. It may as well be a sticker because that's really what the, the point is, I think. Um, what is it? Is it Super Friends for you today? Is it Scooby-Doo? Is it, you know, Ice Princesses? What, what is it on your Band-Aid that you want? What kind of Band-Aid do you want? And the reason I think there are literally just dozens and dozens, dozens of kinds of Band-Aids is because the real purpose of the Band-Aid is to make a kid feel better. That's the point. Just make them feel better. It used to be there was this really sweet season and it only lasted a short amount of time and it's gone for me when uh, my kids just needed a kiss. Do you remember that? Any of you guys remember that? Oh, did you fall down? Let me kiss it and make it feel better. That was such a sweet time. I loved that season. You, you kiss them and, oh, you feel better. Yeah, I feel better. And then there's that one time, you know, it happens once and then it's over. It's like they skin their knee or they scuff their chin and you're like, let me kiss it. And they're like, yeah, that, that didn't really work. I've got it done with that. I need something else. And that's when the parent's like, oh no, got to go to the next level, right? Band-Aid level. So you pull out the last tool, right, the next tool, and now you got to kind of give them this sort of Band-Aid idea. Like, this is what will make, this will, this, will feel, this will feel you better, right? The kid asks, what kind, so you ask the kid, what kind of Band-Aid do you want? And this will make you feel better. This is this great phrase that parents use, kids use all of the time. We say it early on, especially when the hardest part of a kid's life is when they fall down. And uh, mom or dad will pick up the kid and brush them off and we'll say, it's all better. It's all better. 
And then later on, years down the road, when life gets a lot more complicated and uh, those, the innocence of those early years really starts to get kind of torn away, uh, I think we're all still longing for that assurance. We're all still looking for that sense of confidence and security that, that everything's going to be okay. It's, it's going to be all better. And, and we want to believe that someday it's not going to hurt like it does right now, that somebody's going to wipe away the tears like mom used to do and say everything's okay now. It's all better. And we want to believe that all the things that are broken in our world are going to be put back together again. And it's not just kids that want this. It's all of us, right? It's adults too. All of us, I think, are longing for restoration. We're longing for the restoration of broken things. So the question that I want to address today is essentially this. Does the Bible give us a real reason to believe that there is restoration that is possible in the future? Or is this just sort of a hopeful fantasy based on some sort of religious psychological propaganda? Is this idea of a hopeful future just sort of a religious band-aid? Or does the message of God as articulated in the Hebrew scriptures, that is the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible, give us a real reason to believe that the story of God has a happy ending? That, that God's plan is ultimately to restore all things, to make all things better. I am going to argue, along with the historic Christian church, that the Bible actually does offer that hope, that the Bible does point us towards restoration, that the last word in the Bible is the word restoration, that biblical eschatology, that is the understanding of the last things, is profoundly hopeful. That in the end, God does make things all better. And I also want to argue this morning that this matters. And it matters to all of us. It especially matters to our kids. It especially matters to people who are in pain. And I'm going to talk more uh, next week, next Sunday, about the giving the gift of vision to our kids. Giving the gift of a hopeful vision for the future to our kids. It's so critical. And it's increasingly rare. So I'm going to talk more about that next week. What I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that if we can get a hold of this story of restoration, if our kids can get a hold of this story that the mission of God is to engage broken things and make them better, then it's going to clarify our identity and it's going to clarify our purpose as individuals. And it's going to clarify our identity. It's going to clarify our purpose as a church. A friend of mine says that basically kids are asking two questions. Who am I? And is it good news that I'm here? And I want to say that if we can teach our kids the word of God, if we can teach our kids the story of God, if we can kind of get a sense of what is the big story and, and hand this story off to our kids, they will have the framework, they will have the meta narrative, the big story, which will enable them to answer these questions Who am I? Is it good news that I'm here? And dozens of other questions that are important, not with empty sentimentalism, not with superstitious legend, but with life-giving truth. So that's why it matters. All right, so what is the story? We've been talking about this for the last four weeks. This is week five. Say you wanted to summarize the Bible in, oh, like five words. What five words might you use? Let's see if this has caught on, if the repetition at all has worked. I hope that you're capturing this. In the beginning, there was God. He was only good. He created the world and everything in it, including us, and it was all good. It was all good, right on. But by selfishly choosing to believe that they knew better than God, our human ancestors sinned. And this kicked off a devastating series of events, which is known as the fall of mankind. And all that was initially good became 
became broken. That's right. That's the second word. First word is good. Second word is broken. But God did not turn away from humanity. Instead, he made a promise that he would always be faithful to his creation. He would never leave us, never forsake us. He says this over and over again in scripture. I will be your God. You will be my people. In other words, I love you. I want a relationship with you no matter what. That's my promise. So the third word of the Bible is promise, right? And then to demonstrate the fullness of his love, God does the unimaginable. The creator enters creation, becomes human, lives and dies as one of us. And he does this for two reasons. The first is to hurt with us, to join us in our pain. And the second is to hurt for us, to take our place, to die as one of us. So the fourth word is hurt, good, broken, promise, hurt. Let me pause there for a second. I would say that in our country, and especially in the last 50 to 70 years, when we talk about what Jesus did for us, what we think is what Jesus did for me. When we talk about what Jesus did for us, what he accomplished through the cross and the resurrection, we've typically thought very individualistically Jesus died to save me, which is true, it's just not the whole truth. And it probably isn't even the main truth or the primary message. Clearly, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross and through the resurrection affects me as an individual, but I'm trying to say that it's much bigger than just an individualistic kind of thing. And one of the Bible Project videos that we recommended from this last week, I hope you've watched them. This last week, we recommended three videos, and they're especially good. It's in, in terms of depicting really kind of complicated concepts really concisely. I want to show you the last 60 seconds of a video called Heaven and Earth, and it addresses this idea of just a personal sort of salvation versus a bigger picture um, sort of restoration movement that God is about. Let's go ahead and roll that if we can, Lincoln. So I want to spend some time with this part of the story and this last word of the story, this idea of restoration, this idea of God making all things better. This is known as the doctrine of eschatology. It includes, it's the last things. It includes themes like death and judgment and destiny. It's the last word of the story. And it's interesting to me that we read this last word of the whole story in the second page of the Bible. It's there in the very beginning, Genesis 3, just after Adam and Eve sin and everything gets broken and God lays down this curse or the consequences of their sin, there's this fascinating statement. God is speaking at this point in the story to, to the serpent, the, the, the figure of evil, the Satan figure, the deceiver, and God says to the deceiver, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, 
referring to the offspring of the woman, he will crush your head. He will totally destroy you. You will strike his heel. So this is, the first, this is Genesis 3.15. This is the first indication that we read in the Bible that God is already planning a restoration movement that is going to deal with the problem of sin and brokenness in the world. So this plan of restoration, it begins almost immediately. Page 2 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. That's where restoration begins, almost immediately. That's a... That's what church fathers and early church leaders see as the first prophecy of the work of Christ. Christ, in case you didn't catch it, Christ is the son of the woman who will crush the head of the, of the snake, the serpent, Satan. But he's going to get his heel struck in the process. He will be wounded in the process, right? So it begins almost immediately. Then the, the process of restoration gets full-blown in the ministry of Jesus on earth. Jesus comes out of the gate with these words, the thief. The Satan, the snake, the deceiver, he's referring to the devil, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come so that people may have life and have it to the full. And then for the next three years, Jesus is restoring the fullness of life to broken people. What does that look like? He's healing people whose bodies are broken. He's casting demons out of people whose mental state, spiritual state is broken. He's preaching to the poor um, who, this message of restoration to those who are socially outcast, economically broken. So it begins almost immediately, goes full-blown in the mission and the ministry of Jesus, kind of hits this ultimate point of turning at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then God's great restoration comes into fullness in the second coming of Christ. Right? So the restoration of creation begins almost immediately goes full-blown in the ministry of Jesus. The critical turning point is what happens on the cross and following the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And then this is all brought to completion in the second coming of Christ. Now, this is a really important concept for us to get our heads around because it, otherwise, the teachings of Jesus in this regard, and it's a big regard, in regard to the point of the church, uh, are complicated and confusing. The, the interesting and important dynamic to understand is this. That restoration has already begun, but it is not yet finished. We got to get that. It's already started, but it's not yet complete. Theologians have said it this way, that there's a sense in which God's kingdom has already come, but it is not yet complete. It's not yet fully consummated. In other words, this unhindered reign of God, which is what Jesus means when he refers to the kingdom of God, when things are as they are intended to be. When it's broken, things are not as they are intended to be. Babies get sick and things like that. But the kingdom of God is where things are as they are intended to be. And it is that state that has already begun. It has already happened in a sense. And yet there's another sense in which it is not yet complete. Jesus has already overcome sin. He's already conquered death. He's healed people. He's freed people from demonic oppression. And he's made forgiveness available to all, right? But there's also a sense when this is not totally complete. The restoration is not done. He's overcome brokenness, but we're still experiencing it. He's overcome death, and yet we still experience it, even if temporarily. So we, friends, we're living in this very unique time in history where the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet realized. It's like we're living in the four or five hours after the wedding. That's when we're living. 
The last 2,000 years, we've been in the last, in the four or five hours after the wedding. I did a wedding several years ago, and after the ceremony, uh, as they prepared the meal, we're all gathered around, a few of us are gathered around the table, and we're signing the, the wedding license, and it's the most awkward, strange part of the whole ceremony thing, right? Because it's all beautiful, and flowers, and vows, and family, and then it just kind of comes down to a form, a government form. It's super lame. And so you often hear some uh, really funny comments around that kind of awkward, like, okay, you sign here. Oh, no, 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 not there. No, sign there, sign here. And you're trying to find people anyway. This is what the woman says. The bride says, oh, I've been, I've been uh, counting the hours uh, to this moment for like months. I started with like 1,115 hours, and then it was 406 hours, and you know, 102 hours, and then it was 42 hours. And she's like, and I couldn't understand why... Um, my husband, his hours weren't adding up the same way as my hours weren't adding up. And we were like, what's going on? And then they realized that, that she was counting the hours to like the wedding, 3 p.m., and he was counting the hours to the honeymoon, right? So he was always about six hours off, right? But that's where we live. That's where we live. We live in like they are at awkward time. They're married but it is not fully realized yet. And that's where the church is right now. The kingdom of God is here, but it is not fully realized. This is where we find ourselves. Christ has died, historic fact. Christ is risen, present reality. Christ will come again, future hope. We're in the in-between. We're in the tension. And that's what makes it exciting, and that's what makes it difficult. When the day of the Lord comes, all things will be completed. Everything will be all better. Everything will be restored. Nothing will be left broken. And I think it's amazing the degree to which restoration will happen and the degree to which we can expect it to happen. Let me just show you quickly uh, three, three quick ideas here um, showing how even if we look at the curse, the original story in Genesis 3 of the fall, how these are, even these things are being redeemed by Jesus. What's Eve's curse? She's going to experience pain in childbirth, right? Um, what does Jesus do to restore that? He doesn't take it away, which is interesting. We kind of wish he'd take it away, but he doesn't. That's not what restoration is. That's erasing. Restoration is way better than that. Jesus, instead, he doesn't take it away. He enters into it, and he, comes to, he could have come to the world in any way, but he chooses to come to the world through the birth of uh, through birth, through a woman's body. So he takes the very thing that is like the image of her brokenness, the image of her, of, her, of her fallen nature, and he doesn't take it away. He restores it. He says, you know this thing that forever has been a reminder of the brokenness of the world? Now it's going to be a reminder of the wholeness of the world and how I've come to restore these things. What's Adam's curse? Adam's curse is going to have to work really hard, right? He's going to have to earn the living by the sweat of his brow. It's not going to be easy like it was in the garden. He's going to, it's really going to... Um, be difficult. He's going to bear the weight of the sin of the world on his body. Uh, the consequence of sin is a daily toil just to make ends meet. It's a constant reminder that it was, it was you, Adam. It was through you one man sin entered the whole world. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't, he doesn't actually take that away, but he restores it. He redeems it. He takes on his body the sin of the whole world. And the apostle Paul is making this point and he says that just as sin came through one man and death came through sin because all men sinned, so grace and life and righteousness comes through one man, Jesus Christ. He restores the curse. There's even a restoration of the deceptive words that the serpent speaks to the woman, which is crazy. 
The serpent speaks these words of brokenness and death to Eve. He says, take and eat, right? Take and eat. The narrative says she took and she ate. And so understand that for thousands of years, when people of God heard the phrase, she took and she ate, they took and they ate, they thought, oh man, that's when brokenness started. That's when we bought the lie. That's when stuff started to go really bad. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, let's get rid of that phrase once and for all. Let's just erase that from our collective memory. Instead, he, he enters into it. He redeems it. He restores even that phrase. It means that he had to suffer and he had to die. That's the, that's the way to restoration is through suffering. But now these three words, take and eat, they don't even remind us of Genesis 3 anymore, do they? They remind us of something totally different, totally beautiful. Anywhere in the world for the last 2,000 years where Holy Communion is being celebrated, these are the words that witness to new life. Take and eat, right? Even the words have been restored. At every point of brokenness, Jesus has a corresponding point of restoration. There isn't a part of your life that is outside of the realm of his ability to restore. Everything gets restored. God makes all things better. So let me wrap up by just talking about the significance of this. Why does it matter on a really practical level? I think it, I think it changes everything. I think nothing is outside of the, of the, extend, of the boundaries of this, of this message in terms of its effectiveness. But let me just highlight three things. The fact that Jesus came to make all things better, to restore all things, it changes the way I relate to my past sins. Okay? It changes the way I relate to my past sins. These are things I'm ashamed of. These are things that I have done that have caused pain and brokenness to myself and to those that I love. These are um, things that Jesus could but chooses not to just erase. Doesn't just erase them. They happened. He's not going to change the fact that they happened. But he is forgiving. He is redeeming. And he's even restoring these things. So if I bring my... Now, I can refuse. I can refuse to bring my brokenness to Jesus. It's not coercive. I can, I, can just, I can refuse to allow the restorative work of God to touch my past, but I don't have to. I can choose to, to bring my brokenness to God, even my past sins, and allow him to do something good with it. So why is this message of restoration so practical, so meaningful? Why does it matter? Well, first, because it changes the way I understand and relate to my entire past, my sinful past, or even like yesterday's sins. It can change the way I relate to those things. Now I'm looking at them as, as like... Um, as a ground, ground for restorative work. As I submit these things to God, I can expect him to do something good, like that last song we sang, do something beautiful out of dust, make something beautiful out of me. Secondly, the fact that Jesus came to make things all better, to restore all things, changes the way I understand my present situation. And that's very broad category, so let me focus present situation by saying my present suffering, the thing in your life that's really hard right now. The fact that Jesus comes to restore all things should change the way you relate to the most difficult thing in your life right now. Let me talk to you about that just for a second. I remember a conversation I had with my spiritual director many years ago when he challenged me with this. I was feeling suffocated, suffocated by the idea that the suffering in my life was changing my whole life. Everything is being changed by this suffering, whether I want it to or not. I don't have a choice about this. It's changing my home. It was changing my marriage. It was changing my relationship with God. It was changing my relationship with, with all of you, our church. It was changing my time, my schedule, everything. And I didn't have a choice about it. And I'm saying this to this, this minister that I've met with for almost 20 years. His name is Father Tom. I said, I don't even have a choice about this. And he's like, oh, yes, you do. 
yes, you do. And then I knew I was dead when he said that, because here it comes. <laughs> he said, your choice is whether or not you will embrace this suffering. You can try to run away from it. It never works. You can try to if you want to, or you can embrace it. Redemption, restoration, he said, only comes through the suffering. You can't sidestep it. You can't heisman it and try to get away. You got to enter into the suffering. What in the world does that mean? That means that ultimately Jesus came to make things all better. That means I need to embrace my present suffering. But here's the choice. I can embrace it with hope. This present suffering is going to be restored. It's, I, I would rather it not be here most days but I can embrace this present difficulty with the convinced, uh, with, with, a, with a hopeful eschatology, with the idea that Jesus has come to restore even this present difficult thing. The point is, I do have a choice. I do have a choice. The choice is to believe in the restoration of all things right here, right now in my present challenge, right? To embrace the present suffering with hope. And then finally, the fact that Jesus came to make all things better, it changes the way I see the future, very specifically, it gives me a sense of purpose. As an individual, as a community, what am I called to do? What are we called to do? What is my purpose? What is our purpose? Put succinctly, it is to join God in his great plan of restoration. That's the, that's the purpose of the church, to join him in this work of restoring all things to their created purpose, to back to the way they were meant to be in the beginning. Friends, I want my kids to get this more than anything. I want my kids to get this more than anything. You have a great purpose for your life. What is it? It's to fight against the brokenness and to join Jesus in making things all better again. Your purpose is to restore all things. I believe that. We as a church believe that. We've, we've, we've grabbed onto that as the vision for this next season of life here in, in Adamaeus at our church. Next week, I'm going to roll right into a part two of this sermon series I'm going to talk about really specific and practical ways to do the work of restoration in everyday life. The series is called Influence, Thought, Word, and Deed. So I hope you'll be a part of that. I think it'll be really practical and helpful. Let me end with this image. Let me end with the image of a garden. I invite you to consider the image of a garden. At the very beginning of the book, the very beginning, there's a story about a good God in a beautiful garden where everything is good. God's there. People are there. Everything's at peace. Everything is right. Everything is as it was meant to be. The Hebrew word is shalom. It's all good. It's all at peace. It's all right. That's how the story begins. Let me read to you how the story ends. This is the first five verses of Revelation 21. I'm just going to read this to you. You're welcome to read along if you want. John's vision ended the whole Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, O-U-R-N, or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Last few verses from the last chapter. 
chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, like true identity. There will be no more night. There will no, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beginning, beautiful garden. At the end, God restores this garden. It becomes a city of gardens, and everything is good. All of creation exists around this garden as it was intended. God is there. People are there. Everything is at peace. Everything is right. Everything is as it was meant to be. There's shalom. There's shalom. There's goodness and peace. Let's pray together. May this effort, Lord, to summarize this incredible collection of books in five little words be a helpful foundation for our church to take our engagement to a whole nother level, to move into the culture of our homes, our neighborhoods, our cities with a vision for restoration. With, with an ability to bring some sort of sense and narrative to things in the past and the present and the future. Uh, please equip us and enable us, encourage us, fuel us forward, that we would do work that matters, that we would join you in your great mission to restore all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things that excites me so much about being a part of a church is that this is where it begins, literally, this is where the shalom of God must begin to take root, which is why as soon as we preach the word, we invite everybody to stand and extend peace to one another. This is not some empty formality. This is literally the, the rebellious work of pushing against a broken culture and creating with Christ a more wholesome future. So let's do that together. I invite you to stand up with me and just extend peace to one another. Greet those around you and welcome them into the church today. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Greet one another with the peace of Christ.